Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. A little bit later, we'll read some more of this chapter. So Exodus 19, 1 through 6. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim, and were come to, to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness, and, were, and there Israel encamped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye be, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. As I said, we'll read a little bit more in, a, in just a, uh, you know later as we go through this message. But I want us to talk about this. So they, they left Rephidim. Rephidim is where uh, the manna came and the water from the rock. Rephidim is where we talked about last week where uh, Moses sat from the morning till the dark, right? Judging the people. And we talked about what a, what a Christ-like ministry that is. Interceding for the people, taking the people's burdens from them, and then carrying them before the Lord in prayer. And bringing back to them an answer from God if they have a question, whatever it may be. And so that's what we talked about last week. Well, they marched about 18 miles. There's roughly 2 million people about 18 miles from there, from the Red Sea, I'm sorry, and the whole journey they've been in just now into the third month, so about two months, a little over, since they left Egypt. And so they're only 18 miles from the Red Sea. And when it comes to this place where all Bible historians agree this took place, kind of tracing their footsteps, all right, it's a, it's a big wide open plain, a desert plain of kind of yellow sand, it's about two miles long. It's about half a mile wide, very flat. And then all of a sudden, these rocky cliffs kind of rise up. And almost Bible scholars agree this would be the mount that was talked about. This is a pretty famous mountain, right? If you know your Bible and have read through your Bible, this is, this is the mount where God gives the Ten Commandments. This is the mount where the Lord, the Moses goes up to be with the Lord more than once. This is the Mount of God, Mount Sinai. And we can't picture it, I mean, we can't pinpoint it, but it's pretty much agreed that this was in this area. So anything that took place up there, uh, the two million people who didn't go up, Moses went up, okay? The two million people are roughly of the congregation would have been able to see because it's a wide, flat plain. So even if you're a long way away, just like if you're out in the western U.S., you know, where it's flat and desert, you can see a mountain a long way away, right? So the people would have been able to witness what was going on. This is the mountain that uh, the Bible says that might be touched and burned with fire. It says in Hebrews, I believe, chapter 13. Uh, and so it's a famous place. It's famous because God met with man in a very real way, in a very unusual way, and brought his first covenant there. And that's the chosen scene 
where God chose to bring the law, okay, the Levitical law. And uh, like I said, the people would have been able to see what was going on there. So what was God's purpose? So I want to touch on this just real quickly. Okay, I'm not going to spend all night, but just real quickly. Uh, God wanted people to know Him, right? God wants men to know Him. John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is life eternal. He's praying with His disciples. He's praying to His Father. And He says, This is life eternal, that they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. All through the ages, God has wanted to reveal Himself to men, that men might know Him and walk with Him by faith. That's nothing new, okay? But all through, at the, from the time of pretty much after the flood until what we're reading here, the, pretty much humanity was stooped and steeped in idolatry. There was all people worshiping the sun and the moon and all kinds of different things. And we know about all the pagan gods in Canaan, right? That, that they're getting ready to face in, in years to come. But the world was in idolatry, almost wholly given over to idolatry, like Athens was when Paul went there in the New Testament. He was grieved in his spirit when he saw the city wholly or completely given over to idolatry. Idolatry is nothing new. But that was the, what was going on at this time. So what did God do prior to this with Abraham? I know he used other men. He spoke to Noah. He spoke to Enoch and walked with them. As far as really bringing a covenant, it was with Abraham, okay? And that's the line through his descendants that Jesus Christ would come. So he comes to one man, and he reveals himself to one man, Abraham, and he calls him out, out of the idolatry. He specifically mentions that. Out of the land of your, your, your kinfolk, basically, and their gods and the strange gods, and into a land that I'm going to give you. And so through that, he calls one man, and then he, he calls uh, a nation, okay? He calls a Hebrew nation later, right? Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob is the, the father, the patriarch, the 12 patriarch, the, the 12 tribes of Israel were literally 12 sons of his, and he makes them a nation. They were bound together by language. They were bound together by occupation. What did they say when... When the, there was a famine and they went into Egypt, they followed Joseph into Egypt, right? And there were 70 souls, I think, in all. Was it 70 or 72 souls in all that went in? And they said, we're, we're shepherds. That's our occupation. So they were bound together by their language, by their, uh, their father, by their, their occupation. And then they were bound together by a common trial that they went through. They became slaves in Egypt. And God was using this among other things, to knit this people together. And he did a very good job of it. When you think about it, there is not another nation like Israel in the history of humanity. Okay, from the history of Adam and Eve till now, there have been countless, countless nations, many Bible nations that have were, rose to this great power and are gone. They're just, just disintegrating. You know what I mean? They're no longer there. But Israel, with all the persecution which God has allowed, and scattered them, he said, I'm going to scatter you and I'm going to regather you. It would be wonderful just to study Israel sometime in the nation, but it's a very uh, strong proof or evidence of 
the reality of God and the truth of the Bible. Okay? Just Israel. So he knit them together and other nations have come and gone and yet with all that they've been through, they're still a very identifiable people. More identifiable than any one nation or language or group of people on the planet. Next thing he did was that he revealed uh, that he was the living God. I'm the God of your fathers. And this we start linking into our story with Moses, right? He speaks to Moses at the burning bush and says, I've seen the affliction of my people. I've come to deliver them. You go tell them that I am is, has come to deliver them. Okay? And if they say who, you say, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I am, I am, which means he's eternal, which means he's now God. He's always, at any point in history, God. And so he revealed himself, but they really, they, they listened to the, the Israelites that were in bondage to eat in Egypt. They listened to Moses and they, they may have even believed, but that's really all they knew. There was no personal relationship. Well, God is wanting to reveal himself and to reveal more of himself. And so another thing he did was through the plagues. And we've studied the plagues. We're not going back over them. But during the plagues, he revealed himself as being mighty. Here's the gods of Egypt. And he could do that in any area. Here's the gods of Babylon. Here's the gods of Rome. Here's the gods of Greece. Here's the gods. In that instance, here's the gods of Egypt. And he showed himself through those plagues mightier. Right? I'm the Lord Almighty. So He is showing them something about Himself. He's the God of our fathers. He's the I Am. He's come to help us. He's benevolent. He's on our side. And He's powerful. He's more powerful than the gods of of Egypt. But still, He's wanting to, uh, to teach them now. He's wanting to teach them His ways. That they can walk in His ways. And so he's about to give the law. And we're going to do a study in the law pretty soon on Sunday mornings. We're going to take our time to go through it. Because a lot of people have misconceptions about the whole purpose of the law. The law was never given to be the Savior. And so when people think that it's that, oh, that law could never save anybody, but we're part of this new covenant. Well, they're, they're right, but the law was never given by God to be the Savior. Before the law... And during the law, and since the law, Jesus Christ is the Savior. And if we didn't know Him by that name necessarily in the Old Testament, the Lord does say, look unto me and be saved. Right? He says, I am the Savior, I am God, and besides me there is no Savior. Those are Old Testament Scriptures. And so anyway, but He does want to teach people about Himself. So what is He trying to teach us? He calls... Well, the way he does this, he calls his man Moses. He's speaking to one man at this time. He has a mediator. And there again, this was his way. He's going to reveal himself more completely to one faithful man that knows him and really wants to know him. As much as ever much Moses did know him, God was going to bring him to know him more. All right? He does the same for all of us. We're going to talk about this more tonight. But he, he gets one man... And he begins to reveal himself. And he calls him up to the mountain, which we're going to talk about tonight. It would have been impossible looking back to Noah and Abraham and all the things we just talked about 
to predict ahead of time how God's going to do it, but you can look back and see how He did it. Same thing for your life. You have things in your life right now that you're going through. We've had things in our lives that we've gone through that we would have never picked. We would have said, wow, I never saw that on my radar. I never saw that coming. That we would have probably never have chosen for ourselves. But God did it. God brought something, a trial, an adversity. Could be a good thing, could be a, a hard thing. But He did something and He moved us on. He moved us on to know Him more. We didn't understand, we never saw it coming, so to speak. But as we go years on, on by, we can look back and say, I see where He led me. I see why He did this. I never saw it coming. I didn't forecast it. Well, He doesn't forecast everything. He, he just says, keep your eyes on me. He shows us what we need to know, but we don't have to forecast it. We have enough forecasting in the Word of God. And, but we can look back in later years and walking with our Savior and say, I can look back through these years and when that happened, I, I was like out of my mind. You know, it was so hard or it made me so mad or it made me so scared or it was so difficult. I would have never chosen that or done that. But we can look back and see that was the Lord. He knew what He was doing because He had to stir me. He had to get me out of that place. And so... God knows how to do it. But what is He trying to teach on? We're going to look at some of the lessons. What is the Lord, and what did the Lord begin to reveal about Himself to Moses on the mount? Alright? And one of the first things we realize is that he, he, he revealed His majesty. There's a glory and a majesty to God. A greatness to God. Just in, in who He is. Okay? And... Uh, this was, this was on the third day when he had told the people, Moses, tell the people to get ready for the third day because I'm going to come and I'm going to come down on the mountain and the people can come close. They're not going to come up on the mountain, but they can come close and tell them to get ready. And there was going to be this cloud that just sort of hung, this dark, thick cloud. So you're in the middle of a desert, all right? Dry, desert. Here's this mountain crop that pops up. Let's say that that's Mount Sinai right there. Everybody can see it. And God comes down in this thick black cloud. And, and then there's thunders, thundering and lightning going on within the, the clouds on the mountain. And there's a loud voice. God speaking is loud. And there's a sound of a trumpet. And that was going to be to call the people and to call Moses out. Heavenly kind of trumpet. And it was an, an amazing and it was powerful. And he was revealing something about himself is, is this grandeur of God, I guess you would say, or majesty of God. Another thing he revealed there was the nature of God in, in the sense that he's not a man. The John said, Jesus said in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, God is a spirit. You woman you worship, you know not what. We know who we worship. Salvation is of the, Jew, of, of the Jews. Uh, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, saying that He's a spirit doesn't mean He can't have a spiritual body. He does. But He doesn't have just a fleshly body like what we have. He is a spirit. And this is one of the things that He was teaching on the mount. 
And here's here's what happened. The people uh, would probably were probably wondering, oh God, God said He's going to appear to us on the mountain. And they begin to think, probably, what's he gonna look like? What's what's he gonna be like? And here again, this is a danger of idolatry, and you can see how people can slip into it. But God is a spirit. And he's not like a created being. He's not like anything in heaven above, on earth beneath, or below the earth. He's not like any of those things. He's God. He's God alone. And there, he says, who would you compare me to? Who would you, who will you liken me to? And it's a rhetorical question because we can't. What would you say God's like? Is he like a mountain? Is he like the skies? And, and you can see where people get into all kinds of idolatry because they're trying to make God like some created thing, even a beautiful thing, even a wonderful thing. And they try to put a, a portrait in their mind, okay, or a picture in their mind. And we need to be careful of that. He's not like what we imagine him to be, just in our human imagination. He's not like a four-footed beast or a ray of sun or this or that. He transcends all of those things. And I want you to, we're going to go back to that spot in Exodus 19, but I want you to turn with you, if you would, to De- Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I want to read the instruction that was given here. Deuteronomy 4, let's pick up in verse 15. Deuteronomy 4, 15. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image. The similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is in the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of any thing that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. Unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all the nations under the whole heaven. That's pretty clear, right? So this is this is one of the things he was revealing on the mountain. And then years later he's referring back to it and saying, Look, the day that I appeared on the mountain, it wasn't just one day, but the days that he appeared on the mountain with Moses, he says, I didn't show you any similitude of male or female or, or what I look like or anything like that. He he says, and that's because I don't want you to make an idol and bow down and worship it of any created thing. I think that's pretty uh, amazing, the God that we serve. He was there when Moses went up there. They saw the clouds. They heard his voice. Okay, They might not have distinguished words. Moses heard the words. But he was there. It was evident that he was there. He planned the whole thing. He said, I'll be there. He brings a cloud in the middle of the desert, lightning and thunder and trumpets. They knew he was there. They didn't see him in the sense of a man that walks out of the cloud and say, you know, here I am. It was, uh, and it's to keep from, from idolatry. We can see it with uh, Roman Catholicism where, where they take even a crucifix, which we know the Lord Jesus died on a cross, and, and that becomes an object for them to hang on to. 
People can do that, right? And the Lord does not want to do that. God is a spirit, okay? God is a spirit. Another thing he reveals on the mountain, and I want us to go back to Exodus 19 and read a little further. Let's read 10 through 13. Exodus 19, 10 through 13. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And be ready against the third day. So three days before, he was telling Moses what he was going to do and to tell the people what to do. Start getting ready the first day, the second day. Get ready for the third day. In verse 11, For the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall be surely what? Put to death. This is serious stuff. Alright? He's inviting them to come, but he's inviting them to come so far to where he would reveal something about himself there. Moses would have more revelation going up into the mount, but the people were invited. Uh, and he says, be sure to set bounds there. Okay? There shall not a hand touch it, not touch the mountain, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Where, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. So the, the final signal was going to be on the third day, the people would get, they're going to wash their clothes. They're going to be pure in every, every way, clean and undefiled in every way. And and get ready for this third day. They were to set boundaries. Not even a dog should run up there, or a sheep, or a goat, or anything like that. Keep it all back. If anything touches it, there were no exceptions to it. Anything touches that mount, it's going to surely be put to death. And so, the trumpet sounds long. This is speaking, I believe, of God's holiness. That He's holy. He's separated from man, and man is sinful. He loves us. You can see He's the one pursuing the relationship. He's the one bringing the revelation. He's the one making uh, a provision for man's sin through Christ. It's God. He's reaching down to sinful man. But sinful man in his sinful state cannot approach a holy God. So this is one of the things that's being taught here. God's not a snob. He's not uh, anything like that. He's holy. And through His Son Jesus, men can be holy. Alright? Justified fully by His grace. And fit for heaven. And a new creature in Christ. And righteous in Christ. And, but he's, this is a wonderful real life example. It's holy. He's holy. And there were bounds that were set. And so He calls Moses up. When the trumpet sounds, the people were to come. And then it sounded long. Then Moses was to go on up into the thick cloud, alright? And as he gets all the way to the top, and God sends him right back down again. We didn't read all this. We just don't have time. He sent him right back down and said, you go make sure the people don't... You're not with them right now, I guess, but you make sure they don't come any closer. That they don't go past those bounds. And Moses says, Lord, I already told them. You, you said they can't come any closer or they'll die. He goes, go your way. So Moses goes back down the mountain and tells him again. And again, I think it's just speaking of the holiness of the Lord. And so another thing God revealed 
on the mountain, I believe, was the fact that he is ruler, supreme ruler over all. In other words, like his royalty. One of the names of Jesus, when he comes back at the second coming, he's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. That's, he is that, but he, he'll be, that's, that name is written on him. And so the royalty of God and all those gods of Egypt and all the, uh, and all the royalty, the kings of, of Egypt and the, the pharaohs, you know, the kings of Babylon, the kings of these different empires, the Assyrians and everything else and, and, uh, and Caesars and everyone else, they're subservient. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And one of the ways he showed this is that all the people, whether they always liked him or not, the people had a reverence for Moses. He is the man of God. He's called that in the Word of God. And they looked at him as the man of God. They might not have wanted to obey him. They might not have wanted to obey God many times. And we've read it. But they still looked at him as being that man. And to see their leader that was greater than Pharaoh and greater than, you know, the gods of Egypt and so forth. They're mere Moses bowing down before another. You see what I'm saying? Their, their leader is bowing down and giving complete obedience and submission and honor and glory and not lifting a finger without his, with God Almighty saying so. And so the, he's going up there humbly. He's going up there in total obedience to the Lord. When, when God began to speak the Ten Commandments, for example, God spoke them. Moses didn't speak them. He was just an oracle. Moses was a mediator. Moses was an instrument. A faithful instrument, praise God. But he was just an instrument. God is supreme. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He spoke His law. Moses didn't add to it and say, God, I can think of an 11th one I think you should add to that. Or I don't really like the 5th one or whatever. He was just obedient. He's got someone over him. Okay? And, and that is something that was taught on the mountain. Every ordinance of the law, every custom, every provision for civil life, for, for domestic life, for spiritual life, every item in the, how the tabernacle was to be built. Right? Everything, how the priesthood was to be, everything was directly from the mouth of God. Not a, there wasn't any man that chipped in and said, let's do a consensus here. And you're the main one, Lord, but we can sure help you out and add some things or give you some advice. No, every law, everything for the priesthood, the tabernacle, everything was directly spoken from the mouth of God and Moses, his servant, which he's called all through the scriptures, Moses, the servant of God, Moses, the servant of God, uh, he, he received it. It was spoken from God's mouth and not man's. Okay? He is the lawgiver, he's the real king. Moses was a mouthpiece or a mediator. Thank God for, for him. Okay? There's been a lot of mouthpieces and mediators for God over the years. But God is God. He's not one of those mediators in that sense. He's God. And He's supreme. So that's, that's, these are some of the things that were just revealed on the mountain. But uh, I want to talk about Moses on the mountain. What was it like for him? We just don't have time to read the whole chapter. We, we might read a little bit more. But uh, 
he was uh, he was scared physically, which you could imagine, because all the people they're scared and they're at the foot of the mountain, just looking up there, thunders and lightnings and a dark cloud and voices and trumpets and and God's up there, okay, and they were curious but they were afraid and they they were not going any closer. Moses was called up there and in his natural man, it says he did exceedingly fear, quake, I think it says in, in Hebrews. Alright, but, but yet he was, he wanted to go. Does that make sense? He had a fear and a reverence of God. There was an unknown in a sense, but, but he was still drawn. God had invited him. And, and he was going. And the author of this book says that Moses seemed at home there. He seemed at home in the mount. On the mount with God. Isn't that where we want to be at home? Amen? Not just with the, with the multitudes of people all the time where he's interceding for them and bearing their burdens like a nursing mother, he says. Carrying a nation on his bosom uh, and, and crying out to God on their behalf and so forth. He was really at home with the Lord. And what, what we see in the life of Moses is what is a pattern that we see in other men and women of God and we can see in our own lives is that there's a progression. There's a progression where he came to him at the burning bush. And then a progression you know, in that calling. And the progression in how uh, when Pharaoh wasn't let, letting the people go. And you go back to him and you tell him this. And, and there were meetings with him and God. Okay? And then uh, the water from the rock and the manna from heaven, the Red Sea parting. God using Moses for all these things as he turned to God. And then here's something new even where he's inviting him up into this mountain, this thick cloud of darkness. And he says, I'm going to meet you there. There's, there's just, we see it as a, a continual progression or a revelation of God to the man. That's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. We have to obey the Lord in order to do that. But I was just reading this, the book, the author of this book makes a good point that there were uh, different stages. It says, Moses went up unto God. We read that in, in chapter 19. And so he reports the words of the God to the people and he goes back up. He goes up a third time. And he, and he comes down and he, and he goes up a fourth time. And he goes up again and uh, then the law was given. The Ten Commandments were given. In this thick darkness, God spoke to him in chapter 20. And then he was bidden to go back down and go back up again a fifth time. And the elder, elders accompanied him a little bit further this time. For some of the elders, they got to see a little bit more. They went a little further up the mount. And then Joshua went a little further than the elders. And Moses went further than all of them. He was invited to go. That just reminds me of when Jesus had his 12 disciples. He had multitudes of people with him. But when they would go home, he still had 12, right? That got to know more about Jesus and get to know him more than the multitudes. And then there's occasions, several occasions where you see he had, the, he had the 12 and he might leave some of them behind. He took with him Peter, James, and John up onto the Mount of Transfiguration or into Jairus' house. They were or a little further in the garden the night that he was arrested. And 
It's a privilege. It's an invitation. He's bidding us to come. And if we're going to know the Lord, we need to, to go on into that thick cloud of darkness, into that what might look scary. And we wonder, gosh, I've never been here before. And He's calling us on. And so uh, the fifth time He received the it was up there 40 days and nights and he received instructions for the tabernacle. Okay? The fifth time. Sixth time, he goes back up and he, he's interceding for the people because God was angry with the people and said, I'm going to blot them out and start a new nation with you, Moses. And the sixth time he goes up, he's interceding on the behalf of the people. So there's a greater revelation of God and also more of God imparted to the man because that's God's heart. He wanted an intercessor. I looked at there was there was no man to stand in the gap. There was no intercessor. Remember, I think it's where's that in Jeremiah or Jeremiah, I believe. And he's looking for that heart of an intercessor. The seventh time he goes back up and he's invited to come up there and bring the two tables of stone with him. And this is the time where he wanted to, Lord, I've been up here and you've, you've spoken to me and you've used me. I want to see you, Lord. Can I see a little bit more of you? And the Lord says, well, you can't see my face because it's too much. Now, I don't know how to say it. It's too much power, too much glory. I'm going to pass by and I'm going to let you see my back parts as I pass by. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, the safe place. So this is the seventh time he was up there. And God passed by and he remained up there 40 days and 40 nights for a second time. This was beginning to be more of his home. This is where he longed to be. This is a wonderful thing, y'all. I just think it's, and this time when he came down, I'm jumping way ahead. We'll get to some of these studies more as we go. But this seventh time, the second time he stayed 40 days and nights, he came down and what was different about him? His face was shining. His face shone not from any uh, thing of himself. It was from being in the presence of God. And the glory of God was reflecting back from his life. We'll have a whole lesson on that. But it, it really began to change him. And his not only did his face shine, but his life was shining. There was beginning to be more of a Christ likeness about him. And his interceding for the people and his shepherd's heart and his gentleness and his meekness. And it marked him as being the man of God. Not just the shining face, because that would fade away after a while but the, the radiance in his heart and his life. And the Bible says Jesus is the light of the world. And he says, we're the salt of the earth, the light of the world, right? Let our light so shine before men. And so uh, this life and this fellowship with God, we saw it in Moses' life was a uh, progression. We're about to close. But it, it, that life of God, that intimacy with the Lord and the Christ-like character that He is desiring for all of us and that we desire. It's probably a shame that we don't desire it more than we do. But He definitely desires it. We do desire it, but we have to stir ourselves up to desire it more. Or we'll just get on this plateau and I got work and I got school and I got this and we just stay in a flat plane. But God wants us to be stirred up. Come on up here with me. The Lord already prayed today. I know He already prayed today. Moses had already been up on the mountain. Go back down. Come back up again. You know? In other words, he's calling us on. That doesn't happen 
that fellowship and intimacy with God is not built up in a day. It is a practice. And then we're going to close with just this thought, okay? However long it is, but it is a habitual practice. It is a practice of you, and there's nothing limiting us other than us. Because the invitation is open to all, all or lost men to be saved and saved men to come on with Christ. Now, how far we can go with Christ? As far as we want to go with Christ. Now, how close we can be to the Lord? As close as we want to be to the Lord. I forgot who it said, every man has as much of God as he wants. We have as much of the Lord as we want. You say, well, I've got, what do you mean? You can't quantify the Lord just in the sense of, of like Moses, growing in the Lord, being more like Christ, our fellowship with God, our intimacy with God. We have as much as we want because there's no limit. We don't read in the Bible there's a limit. We know when we see Him one day, will be like him, that final transformation will take place. But between here and there, there's always new ground that we can gain. We talk about it all the time, and it's very exciting to me. It's exciting to me that we haven't plateaued out. And let's say we're going to live another 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, that we're not plateaued out. This is as spiritual as I can be. This is as much as I can pray. This is much power of God can be exhibited through my life. This is much, as much revelation of the Lord as I, I'm going to have. But no, it's not. We have as much of the Lord as we want to have. And it's, it's not done in a day. We're saved in a day. We're saved in a moment. But to be that man or woman of God, it is a lifetime of pursuing after the Lord. And I would say to every one of us here, the young people, anybody, the new, new Christians, the older saints that have been saved a long time, it is up to us. This, these sermons, okay, and getting together as a body, and we're provoking one another to love and good works. This is part of it. But this is not all of it. This is not all of it. What happens in our few hours each week, and they're blessed, and they're, they're needful, and they're wonderful. Okay, but this is only to spur us on to individually take that ground with the Lord. We hour by hour, we day by day begin to commune with the Lord. What happened with Moses? He, he started communing with God more often. The times he did commune were longer, more often and longer. So what does he do? He's spending more time with God. <coughs> He's spending more time with God. It's not a point of punching the time clock and say, I did 15 minutes more today than yesterday. It's a question of pursuing after God. And as we spend that time with God, He's going to reward us. Nobody's going to be let down or disappointed. Disappointed. There comes a time where we have to wait upon the Lord. You want Him to do something. You feel like He's called you to a deeper walk. You haven't experienced it yet. You're like right on the, the precipice of it. You're right on the brink of it. And God may call us there to wait. Wait until the trumpet sounds one long blast. And when Moses, when the trumpet sounds one long blast, that's when I want you to come on up. Okay? And we go up and we're with the Lord. And this becomes more of a pattern. It, that's, that's the whole thing. We're not to try to repeat Mount Sinai and the thundering and the lightning and the trumpets. We are to gain from that a pattern 
again, when the disciples were with the Lord all day, and he had been healing and giving of himself, virtues going out of him, and they would go to sleep, and he would go pray. They had to learn that. They'd go to sleep, he would go to pray. Late at night. And when they get up in the morning, he's already up early in the morning praying. Doesn't he need sleep? Doesn't he need rest? Well, we all do. But he needed more than that was to, to that communion with his Father to be strengthened, to know his will, to hear his voice. We need the same thing. Or even in the ministry, or even as Christians, we can busy ourselves and occupy ourselves with things and wear ourselves out like we talked last week. Whereas we, if we would spend the time with God, we may have avoided a lot of those things that were not what He called us to do in the first place and been very efficient in doing what He did call us to do. But I can't tell you what that is and you can't tell me. We can be, have the guidelines from the Word of God, but the Holy Ghost has to speak to you. And He can't speak to you or me if I'm too busy. Remember I said, I did my church time already for this week. You know, we can be just like a Catholic that says, oh, I went to Mass on Saturday night, so now I'm good for the week. Went on Saturday night. We can be just as guilty. I did my prayer time this morning. What if God's calling me up to the mount again? Do I want that? Is it worth it? Is it more valuable than anything else or any other way that I would spend my time? I'm going to say by faith, yes, it's worth it. He's worth it. The personal revelation that He gives of Himself. Uh, it's more of a... Uh, the visions that are given, the comfort that's given, the strength that's given on the mount. We're using that for a figure, right? Where you're on the mount with God and I'm on the mount with God. Uh, it becomes increasingly more intimate and, more, and it should become longer and we spend more time there, and like Moses, we should feel more at home there than in the world. And if I'm actually feeling more at home in the world, not necessarily sinful things, but just worldly activities, if I'm more comfortable there than on the mount with God, then I need the Lord to do some heart surgery on me. And He can. Don't fret and think I'll just always be this way. We'd have to say, God, change my heart. I have too much attraction to the world and not enough attraction to you, but I know by faith that you are worth it. I know by faith that you are more precious and wonderful than anything this world could ever offer. So would you change my heart? And he's going to say, I'm going to change your heart. But I need you to obey me. I need you to walk in what I show you. If you'll do what I'll show you, I'll do what you're asking and more. He's able to do it. Paul said, I'm going to close with this, then you can come that, um, and I think about this, I really have never studied how long after Paul's conversion this happened, but in Philippians 3.10, where he says that I may know him, we all know the scripture, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering may be made conformable to his death. He'd been saved. He had been saved for years, many years. And he said, what are you saying, Paul? You're already knowing. But he's telling the believers in Philippi, oh, that I, I want to know him. That's what Moses is saying when he's, when he's saying, Lord, you've talked to me and you've used me to part a Red Sea and you've, 
you've, I've heard your visible, your audible voice, and, and I saw your finger write the, the, on the tablets of stone the Ten Commandments, Lord. But Lord, I want to know you more. Can you show me yourself? This is a godly thing. This is a wonderful thing. God wants that to be in your heart. He wants that to be in your want to, in your desires, in that desire above all. And we, he says, if we'll seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the other things are added unto us. It's, it's open. The mount is still open for the friends of God. Amen? He, he wasn't, he's not just Abraham a friend of God or Moses a friend of God. We are friends of God. He calls us his friend. And he wants us to be with him. And so that we would have that longing to know him more. So I'm going to close with that tonight. Just take a few moments. We didn't go for quite as long tonight. Before you run out, I'm asking you to take, take a moment with, with the Lord at these altars and pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. God, I feel so far in my own Christianity from Moses or Abraham or David. There was a man after your own heart. God, I feel so far from Paul, the apostle, from where they were in their longing for you. But I know that that is an open invitation for everyone, we come through Christ, and we keep coming through Christ. And God, I believe that you're calling us as a church, and you're calling us individually, the young people and the older saints. You're calling us up onto the mountain, the Mount of God. Whether it's a deeper prayer life, which I believe it will be, a greater uh, burden for what burdens you, Loving the things you love and hating the things you hate. Like Paul, that we would know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering being made conformable to your death. God, I pray that you would draw us on. It's not all going to be finished tonight, but Lord, let something happen tonight where you move us on. And tomorrow morning or tonight we go home, when you wake us up in the morning, that you would call us up to the mount and we wouldn't say, Lord, maybe later. I'm really busy right now. I've already prayed and read my Bible. If you're calling us up to the mount and Lord, call us, that we would say, yes, Lord, I'm your servant. I'm coming. I'm coming by faith. I'm coming with expectation. I'm coming with hope and trust that I'm your friend, God. Do that work in my life. Do that work in all of our lives, God. Let it be ongoing till the day we see you face to face in Jesus' name.